you have to have a vision of where you're going. And one thing that we did to start off on our journey is make sure that we heard the voices and the experiences of our people. Because again, I strongly feel in order to advance health equity, you had to start with the people that are providing the care and the services. You can't just focus on the patients because if your people don't understand the principles of driving health equity and they themselves don't feel like a part of this movement, you're not going to improve the health outcomes for the diverse patient populations that we serve. So the first thing that we did was do an assessment to say, how do people feel? What's the culture here? What's the climate here? What are the, the pain points? And then what we also did is that we did a full listening tour. Our senior executives of our organization held multiple various different listening sessions to hear from our community, our UCLA health community. Welcome to the In On Health podcast. I'm your host, Kapama Yelpala, and I go by KP. I'm the co-founder and CEO of In On Health. In today's episode, I speak with my good friend, Dr. Medell Briggs Melanson. She is the Chief of Health Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion for the UCLA Hospital and Clinic System. In her current role, she is responsible for the implementation and oversight of organizational structures and initiatives that promote inclusivity and equity among UCLA health staff, patients, and communities. She is also an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and a practicing emergency room physician. Dr. Briggs received her undergraduate degree from UCLA, her medical degree from Harvard Medical School, an MPH from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, and a Master of Science in Health Service Research from the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. In today's conversation, we cover Medell's journey as a leader in both health equity and diversity, equity, and inclusion locally and nationally. We discuss how UCLA Health approaches these topics and some of the important insights she has regarding leadership principles to improve the U.S. healthcare system. I hope you find this conversation as enjoyable and insightful as I did. I am so pleased to have my good friend, Dr. Medell Briggs, here with us today on the In On Health podcast. Um, she's had a really fascinating and impactful career, and we're going to touch on many different themes across the different areas in which she's working. Medell, so happy to have you here with us today. Oh, KP, it's such an honor to be here with you today as well. Thank you so much. So look, let's just, you know, we usually start these conversations off with a little bit of your personal narrative. So maybe you can give us a bit of about your background and what led you to clinical medicine and public health. Great. Thank you so much for that question, KP. My journey to clinical medicine and public health, and I'll also include health equity, um, has definitely not been a straight journey. So I was one of those very interesting little kids that knew from the age of five that I wanted to be a doctor. And the, really, the, the reason why I wanted to be a doctor was because of my aunt, who is a nurse, who actually did instill that seed into me. And there was one day I was playing with their stethoscope. And she came over to me and she said, oh my gosh, sweetheart, do you want to be a doctor? And she didn't see a nurse, although she was a nurse. But I realize now the reason why she said and asked me if I wanted to be a doctor was because I think at that moment in time, 
she recognized the lack of physicians of color, but definitely also the lack of women physicians of color in this country. And, and even to this day, we know that overall black physicians in the United States make up no more than about 4% of all the physician workforce with 2% of those being women. And so for some reason, from age of five, I decided to become a doctor, but the story actually gets a lot more deeper and meaningful. Throughout my entire life, I have, yes, been faced with racism and sexism. Um, and other forms of isms that are out there. But I also was raised by a highly supportive, highly educated family. So that came with a significant amount of privilege. And so that came especially to the fact that if I were sick, I knew I could go to the doctor. Um, There was never a time in which I had a feeling of food insecurity, for instance, or housing insecurity. But as I continued on growing up where in all the different areas where I grew up, I actually had very close friends who didn't have access to go see a physician. Or I had other friends that really didn't have the financial means at the level that my family did. And I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that, gosh, if you're sick, why can't you go see the doctor? You know, as a child, I couldn't comprehend that understanding. And, And so those were some of the things that stuck with me, even from my childhood, my teenage years all the way up through college. Um, And from there, you know, still that passion of serving others and serving others through healthcare was with me. But then that's where also my community passion grew. So um, when I was an undergraduate at UCLA, was very involved with a lot of our our various different um, organizations for students of color that were focused on healthcare and public health and really being part of community with community, trying to hold health fairs and trying to do health education. Um, And that sort of just grew my heart even more for making sure not only others that look like me, but others that have been historically marginalized or under-resourced have the same opportunities as anyone else to live that very healthy life. And so I was fortunate enough to, of course, go on to medical school um, at Harvard. And there at Harvard, my mind was completely blown even more because as I came in and I, I thought that I wanted to be a physician just serving, you know, one person at a time, I was soon encouraged like, no, 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 your role is actually to help to make not only your individual patient healthier, but full communities, populations, a global impact. Right. But I knew like from just the skills that we were receiving in medical school, it wasn't enough. So that's when I took a break between my third year and my fourth year of medical school and when I received my master's of public health from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health at Harvard uh, with an emphasis on healthcare management and policy because my focus was that if we're going to make sure we have high quality care that's accessible for all people regardless of their backgrounds, we need to make sure that we're developing those policies and that legislations to do so. We need to build the infrastructures in community in order to do so, um, in order to improve the community. Right. So so what I'm hearing, just to ask, so even when you were in medical school, you knew at that point that you were really interested in system and change, policy change, and that you might at some point in your career decide to go more into those domains. You kind of knew that early on, sounds like. Yeah. You, you know, KP, I'm happy that you picked up on that. I didn't really understand it intellectually, but I knew it in my heart. Mm, Okay. I knew that 
in order to have the greatest impact and it helped the greatest number of people. We just couldn't do it one person at a time. I didn't want to just do it one person at a time. And mm-hmm. if we had these broken systems that we have to think about, how do we drive the change at a larger scale? So I had something burning inside of me, which has now manifested to exactly, as you said, systems redesign policy in order to to address all of the inequities that we've had in our country and, and throughout our world. So yes, that's how it did manifest. I see. And I have to ask, as a Black woman who clearly is has a gift in science and in, in medicine and healthcare um, and trained in the way you did, can you share a bit of what your experience was like? We're hearing more and more that about some of the challenges that people of color and specifically women of color have, not just in medical school, but also in the clinical setting. Can you share some of maybe your earlier observations being a Black woman in medical school and in your early career and, and what that was like? Sure. More than happy to share that experience. But in order to share that experience, I think I had to take it backwards to actually add even more context. Okay. The fact that I was in, that I even matriculated to medical school is a testament to the strength of my family and what they instilled in me and the circle mm. I had around me. And the reason why I say that is because even starting in high school, and which I did end up going to predominantly white schools when I was growing up. But even in high school, although I was in honors courses or international baccalaureate courses, when I went and told my counselors, hey, you know what? I want to be a doctor. They literally looked at me and said, people like you don't become doctors. Mm-hmm. And in fact, people like you don't even go to four-year colleges. So why don't you think about going to a different type of education, go to community college. You can just figure something out from there. Remind you, this is a student who is performing very well in their honors courses and IB, but what they saw was my skin color and my gender and automatically discredited me. Now, I would hope that that was just in high school, um, but it wasn't. And so just as I brushed off that high school counselor and said, I don't know what you're talking about. You don't know me. I know exactly what I can achieve and will achieve such. Unfortunately, even when I was in college, I had the unfortunate experience of also being devalued and being faced with sexism and racism and whatever other form of isms. And I can tell you that there was one professor in particular in which I was really did very, very well in his class, like literally scored the highest grade in that class. And I'll just tell you, it was a virology class. And I went to him to ask for a letter for recommendation for medical school and, you know, told him like, hey, I've enjoyed your class. I performed very well. I received literally an A plus in your class. I have a great relationship with the TA. And this professor looked me straight in the eye and he said, gosh, I don't know if you're going to get into medical school. You may maybe get possibly into a low tier medical school, but I don't really think you have great chances of medical school. Now, this is this professor saying this without seeing my grades and my performance in college, without seeing my NCAT scores, but just making the assumption. But you had still had the best score in his class. Yes, 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 exactly. I had the number one best score in his class, literally. But he still looked at me and said, no, I don't think you can be a doctor. And so once again, this was not my first time being faced with this level of racism and sexism. And so I just said, you know what? That's your opinion. I know who I am and I know what I will achieve. And after I received 
all of my acceptances to medical school. And then after I accepted the offer to attend Harvard Medical School, I immediately emailed that professor and I immediately told him, you know, I just want to make sure that you're aware. I got into every medical school I applied to and next year I'll be going to Harvard because that was important for me to say your level of bias is so rooted in racism and sexism. It's important for you to understand whatever you tried to do to stop me, whether it was intentional or unintentional, this is the true outcome of how this works. And I needed to make sure that he understood where his blind spots were as well. So, you know, even right now, I can, I can tell you, KP, um, you know, as a practicing clinician, as an executive, a lot of the bias doesn't go away. Um, I have been the victim of numerous um, patients within the clinical settings that have called me racial slurs, um, that have called me other types of inappropriate misogynistic terms. And But then I've also had numerous patients, probably more, I would say absolutely more than the patients that have exhibited racist or sexist behaviors. I've had patients where I walk up and I still remember to this day, one of my special little patients, he was this little old white British man. And I walked up to him and immediately when I walked up, he said, now you look like a doctor. You're my doctor, right? And I was like, yes, sir, I am your doctor. And so those situations are actually for me right now more common than the situations where I may be faced with discriminatory or offensive behavior from patients and then even from colleagues. And so I think we are shifting the tides. People are starting to see us in certain regions of the country, but we still have a lot more work to do. Look, thank you so much, Medell, for framing this. And one, I, I want to thank you for sharing your story. Um, these are important stories to share, and they're not easy to share. And I know there are so many people out there listening, like you, like me, that we could share these stories on and on and on. But I really like how you've also framed the nuance of how we're moving. And it's encouraging to hear that increasingly this doesn't represent the majority of your interactions, but this is what we've had to go through to get to where we are. And we still have a lot of work to do. Um, this is a nice transition point to talking about your current role. We have so much to get to today. So you are the first chief health equity, diversity, and inclusion officer at UCLA Health. For people to know, she is also a practicing ER physician and still does clinical work. So she has a lot on her plate. But let's talk more about this, this first this new role you have as a first kind of chief health equity, diversity, and inclusion officer, what does that entail? Um, and how do you start when you you have a job with such scope and impact? So thank you for that question, KP, because there is a large scope underneath it. And so first, let's unpack it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the reason why I want to unpack what it is to be the chief of health equity, diversity, and inclusion is because it's hitting all three domains of our health system and our community, literally. And so underneath my scope includes taking care of the people within my organization, taking care of our patients that we have the privilege to serve, and then also taking care of our communities, the communities that we currently exist in and the communities that we serve as well. And so the reason why even we as UCLA Health, we decided not to 
for instance, establish a role that was just going to be a chief diversity officer or even mm-hmm. a chief equity diversity inclusion officer, because we're so much more than that. We are a healthcare system. So our number one role of business is to provide care, but we have to provide equitable care. So that's the right. whole point of that health equity piece of that, because that's our business. Mm-hmm. But there's no way you can actually provide equitable care if within your organization, there's inequities. If within your organization, it lacks inclusivity and respect and dignity and fair opportunities for everyone. So what I do in my role is first within the organization, looking at our people, what I and my teams do is really make sure that we are promoting an environment that's inclusive, that's respectful, and that celebrates the beautiful diversity of all the various different people that are part of the organization and making Mm -hmm. sure that the organization understands that when we have diverse organizations and especially healthcare organizations, we tend to perform better. We have, we provide better care that's culturally and linguistically aligned. Um, In addition to that, we have greater sense of cultural humility and we tend to get along with one another a lot more when we acknowledge all of those various different difference or all of our differences, but then also understand how we come together for a common mission. So that's what I do on the inside of the organization and making sure that everyone has a sense of belonging, but also has that still that collective sense of inclusive excellence. Well, that's amazing. So, so Medell, I want to make sure because you've you've shared something really important, and this is a theme we want to cover this season that I think gets missed. So, and it's nuanced, but you framed it very well. So, what you're saying is the health equity hat is about ensuring the more equitable distribution of healthcare services resourcing to the communities that you serve in Los Angeles, but then the kind of diversity and inclusion side now is more internal facing, but actually the way you're talking about it, there is an intersectionality. And would you go as far as to say it actually requires both to be successful? 100%. And and I love the way that you led up to that. So how I describe the relationship between equity, diversity, and inclusion and health equity is that health equity is part of our much larger ecosystem. Health equity is driven by the social structural drivers of health, with healthcare being one of the factors that influence an individual's overall health and well-being, mm-hmm. as well as a community's overall health and well-being. So we as health systems, because it's our business of providing healthcare services, what our role and responsibility is, is not only to ensure equitable access and equitable access to various resources. But when we're providing those services, again, it has to be culturally appropriate and respectful, linguistically Mm -hmm. aligned. And we also have to make sure that even though we're a a health system, we're impacting those other social structural drivers. So we're we're making sure to focus on both our patients and our community's health needs, but also their social needs, which is another part of the movement for really advancing health equity. And now we as an institution or we as part of health systems, when focusing on equity, diversity, inclusion, that's of the people providing the healthcare services. 
And we mm-hmm. are still part of that ecosystem, but we're a smaller portion. We're a smaller nucleus. And so the way that I like to describe it is almost like providing customer care. You're never right. going to provide great customer care if all of your, your, your employees are disgruntled. Right. So we think all these other industries like the hotel industry that has perfected this with like Ritz and Four Seasons of that customer experience. You have to have those same principles within the people that are providing the services of feeling a sense of respect and a sense of belonging and a sense of equity in order for your people to provide that high quality, equitable, culture aligned, affirming care to all that we have the privilege to serve. So they are intricately connected, but different. One's external facing towards our patients and our community, that's health equity, and one's internal facing inside our organization, which is the equity, diversity, inclusion aspects. Amazing. Thank you so much for framing that so clearly. I think that gets missed. So let's unpack now a bit of Again, that question, how do you start? So this is a broad scope. So now we know we have this framework because your role is both external facing and internal. Um, How did you go about starting and what are some of the key initiatives you're leading today? We started almost almost two years ago and I can tell you it's been a very fast-paced journey. And what I tend to say about our journey is that we know it all starts with low-hanging fruit. And what you can pluck off, but most importantly, you have to have a vision of where you're going. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we did to start off on our journey is make sure that we heard the voices and the experiences of our people. Because again, I strongly feel in order to advance health equity, you had to start with the people that are providing the care and the services. You can't just focus on the patients because if your people don't understand the principles, of driving health equity, then, and they themselves don't feel like a part of this movement, you're not going to improve the health outcomes for the diverse patient populations that we serve. So the first thing that we did was do an assessment to say, how do people feel? What's the culture here? What's the climate here? What are the the pain points? And then what we also did is that we did a full listening tour. Our senior executives of our organization held multiple various different listening sessions to hear from our community, our UCLA health community of saying, you know, what are your experiences? What do you want to see change? Um, And then we also went to our various different affinity groups, which many of them started to, to sprout up from grassroots efforts like our Black Leadership Coalition, our Black Latinx Native American Faculty Collective, all of these different groups. And we, we met with students and staff and faculty and say, tell us what the challenges are. And then from that voice, from that feedback, we developed a strategic plan. And we have a five-year strategic plan of where we as UCLA help, where we want to go in terms of achieving inclusive excellence and high performance within our organization, but where we also expect to see the health outcomes for the diverse patient populations that we serve. And then from that five-year plan, we started to develop our each one of our fiscal year plans, which it's not a separate kind of siloed plan. What we believe is equity and justice have to be the center of all that we do. And so equity principles, justice principles are now being interwoven into our day-to-day operations, our day-to-day policies, our day-to-day procedures. And because we have to have that structural change in order to get to the systemic change that we're all after. 
Right. So I have a question here. So on the, um, and I'm going to keep using this framework you've laid out. So internally, you've got, you've got a rationale that you're leading in the organization that diversity, equity, inclusion isn't just the right thing to do, but also that it drives organizational excellence and it helps you serve your patients better. So that's part of the story. But another part of the story that I know we're working on and kind of working through in industry is how do we think about the financial impact of reducing health disparities and how does this tie into the financial game plan of an institution? So I'm quite curious about your view of this and how you and the executive leadership at UCLA Health think about that element of health equity in your planning. Yes, I'm so happy that you mentioned that. Because that's one of the things that we literally actively have been talking about, um, even as early as recent conversations this week. So one thing that we are very much committed to is not one or the other, right? And so equally, when we think about this work for too long, it's like, oh, gosh, like, well, what's the financial or the business model for really driving, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion? No, 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 Mm -hmm. no. It's not more. It's the core because even when, and I'm going to say that one more time, it's not more, it's the core because when we're looking at what we as health systems are, are focused on, so all health systems across the country are focused on decreasing inappropriate readmissions, um, having appropriate lengths of stay, making sure that we are serving our most vulnerable populations in the ways that it, that it needs to be. By really taking an equity and justice lens and especially by shifting our mindset and our models from just thinking about what is the clinical services that we provide in the four walls of our clinics, emergency departments, and hospitals, instead shifting to what is our responsibility as health systems to be part of community and address those social drivers that we know play a larger role it wants mm. overall health outcomes and health behaviors. That's where the shift is. Because if we think about now really investing our people our, and our other resources into influencing and impacting those social structural drivers, such as education, such as food availability, such as housing security, we're going to see a decrease in the inappropriate utilization of services. We're going to see a decrease in avoidable readmissions, but we have to start looking at patients holistically. Instead Mm -hmm. of just saying, you're here with a medical condition, we're only going to treat that, knowing that 98% of our patients' time is in their home, is in their community. So that's where that model comes into place of thinking smarter and being more innovative and understanding what's truly driving adverse outcomes that we see in hospital systems and also financial um, challenges that we see in hospital systems and readjusting our vision for that. Great. No, that's really helpful to, to hear. And maybe we can talk about some specific examples. So I know in terms of access, I've seen you guys have an initiative where you're sending, as I understand, mobile clinics out into communities. So maybe we can hear a little bit about that. But then also, like, what are some of the things you guys are thinking about around addressing social determinants of health and how you work with communities to help ensure they just have a better context in which they're living and trying to thrive. Yes. So 
I'll tell you a little bit, for instance, of our homeless healthcare collaborative that we're very, very proud of that we launched in January of 2022. So what we actually have is now medically equipped vans that are traveling throughout the entire Los Angeles community, providing medical care to people experiencing homelessness. And so our vans are equipped with pharmacy, it's equipped with labs, it's equipped with anything and everything that you may actually have in a brick and mortar clinic. But the whole purpose of this is to meet our patients where they are and to decrease all the different barriers for why patients may not come in to see us in a timely manner and instead may end up in the emergency department with worsening of their conditions. And so we currently are, are providing care seven days a week. Uh, we have two vans right now. We'll soon be expanding the fleet all the way up to six vans, which the six vans will also have special focus on, for instance, behavioral health and psychiatric services, other things such as addiction services, other aspects of, you know, really focus on family type services as well. Because unfortunately, after the pandemic, we have a lot of families that are experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity. So that's one way of what we're trying to have innovative, different models of saying, you know, what, it's not good enough anymore, but just expect patients that come to us. We have to go to our most vulnerable patients. We have to go to our patients that are more under-resourced and provide them the same level of high quality care that we would provide them in one of our brick and mortar clinics. So that's one example of how we are going directly to community in order to provide care. Um, but your other question of how do we leverage our assets in order to make sure that we're addressing some of these social structural drivers of health? Um, we're now a proud member of the Healthcare Anchor Network. And one of the things that we're even doing through the Healthcare Anchor Network is partnering with communities in order to say, we're not going to try to do this like patriarchal, top down, we as a healthcare system know what you need. What do you need as a community? What do mm. you think are the drivers for poor health or for poor social well-being? And how can we as UCLA Health partner with you and use our assets in order to assist? How can we bring our expertise to the table with your leaders for us to promote a healthier environment? and healthier future for the citizens of your city. So that's one of the things that we're even doing through our anchor mission is looking at both the health and the social needs, partnering with community and say, is it education? Is it more mental health support? Um, is, it, is it more early childhood you know, or, or childcare? What is it that we can do to in order to infuse not only greater health well-being, but economic prosperity, educational attainment, which we know are some of the key, most important aspects of overall health outcomes? That's amazing. I really love hearing those concrete examples. And I'm sure our listeners found that kind of really connecting the dots from where we started to some really concrete action and community. Um, before I move to some policy issues, I want to ask you about the issues of data, right? Like we understand that you know, I like to say you can't sustainably change what you can't measure, right? And, you know, I think that um, when we think about measuring health disparities, there's lots of challenges in there. So maybe we can briefly hear some of how you're approaching that challenge before we move into some of your policy work. So all, to all the listeners, KP knows I'm a data nerd. And so that's why he's asking me this question. <laughs> of um, course, <laughs> I couldn't do this conversation <laughs> without that. <laughs> yeah, but I completely agree with you, KP. If we don't know where we are and if we can't measure it, there's no way we can be successful or sustain it. 
So data is core to all of our health equity and overall EDI efforts here at UCLA Health. And some of the things that we have already done is that we have already started the journey of completely revamping the way that we collect data for our patients. Number one, making sure that our patients self-report their various different identities. It's not about putting them in boxes because no group is a monolith, whether it's race, ethnicity, ability, status, social, economic, status, sexual orientation, gender identity. All of us have a matrix of identities. So therefore, we want our patients to self-identify because that's what's going to make our data and our system more accurate and more actionable. So that's one thing that we have actually created, a very nice way for patients to self-report their various different identities. From there, what we have created is that we have infused within our electronic health record system numerous indices, such as the social vulnerability index score, the area deprivation index score, the healthy places index score, so that we Mm. can also take a look at our patient populations, not only by demographic features that they self-report, but also by the communities, the social vulnerability of their communities. But then what we've also done is that it's about visualization of data. So we now have dashboards for various different disease entities, utilization rates, various different healthcare outcomes, where we can slice and dice and really look at the intersectionality of populations as well. So we can look at, for instance, language and insurance status and see if there's any vulnerable populations there. We can look at gender identity and religion and see if there's any variations there. So it allows us to have a much more robust approach to be able to see who we're serving How well are we serving them? And are there any inequities in the patients we're serving for that we need to develop more clinical interventions immediately for? So that's really important for us. And it's even to the point, KP, that hopefully by the time that this podcast actually does air, um, we will even have a new director of health equity analytics and strategy here at UCLA Health. And which Mm. your predominant role is to take a look at all the data system-wide identify any forms of inequities and help to drive and in, in, in partnership with the other stakeholders strategies for us to advance equity for those most vulnerable populations. That's amazing. No, I love hearing that. I have to ask another thing. You know, I hear from different institutions that one way to ensure that you actually move the needle in an institution around these type of measures is by tying them to key employees' performance metrics, right? And make creating a linkage between, you know, this work you're talking about and key staff's, like, you know, performance metrics from a HR perspective. Are you guys looking into that? Or is that, you know, obviously in your team, this is key. But when you look at the broader system, is this a conversation you're having? Or have you been moving in that direction? This is where we started. And so I have to give Extreme kudos and respect to our president, President Johnny Spiso here at UCLA Health, because part of this energy that we have within our healthcare system occurred even before me. But she said, mm. this is important. This will be a priority for UCLA Health to, to really support equity and inclusivity amongst our people, but also to promote health equity amongst our patients. So she actually made them institutional goals. She tied them into various different incentives for the executives and the directors because she said, this is a priority. This is what we're going to do. So yes, that has been truly one of the foundational pieces 
that has actually led to our already our, our successful journey, although we have a long ways to go. But a lot of the energy and the momentum that UCLA Health has had, it came from the top and the top said, we're going to do this. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you've also been involved in a lot of policy um, initiatives. So it's more than we can cover today. However, um, I know in California, if I recall correctly, you're, you've been involved in some landmark legislation related to health equity um, and even in some federal legislation. Can you maybe talk a bit about California? And if we have time, also maybe touch on some of your federal leg- legislation work as well. Absolutely. So there is some California legislation, and I must say I have not had a direct influence on the California legislation. I've actually worked a lot more with our elected officials on the federal level. Um, and okay. so and so I can tell you a little bit about um, our federal level. Um, so one of the, the leg- pieces of legislation that has been introduced to Congress is the Equal Care for All Act. And so that was a legislation that was sponsored by both um, Congressman Adam Schiff from California and Senator Padilla, also from California, and which I served as the primary um, kind of health equity expert for for the the creation of this legislation. And what this legislation actually is, is that it is one of the first pieces of legislation that really looks at holding both individual providers and organizations accountable for inequitable outcomes of patient populations, especially those that are driven um, by racism and bias and other forms of discrimination. And so what it states is that we have to do a better job at making sure that we're providing equitable care to all, and especially when it comes to people's protected class. And it's no longer appropriate that we have accountability structures in other areas. But when it comes to someone's life, when it comes to someone's health, we're not holding our providers and our overall healthcare institutions accountable for such. Right. So, so that is a piece of legislation that has been introduced. Um, is we're very excited to continue to see it move forward. But it directly aligns with the Biden Harris administration of how they have placed equity at the core of. What all of what they expect all of their agencies to do. So, for instance, even when it comes down to the new centers for Medicare and Medicaid services, um, some of the new proposed rules that CMS is actually advancing around health equity, they're saying the same thing. They're saying, gosh, now people need to be accountable for the care that they deliver, as well as for the outcomes of the various different patient populations that they're serving. Right, right. No, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, As we're kind of winding down our conversation, I really love how whenever I engage with you, it becomes so clear without, I mean, anyone listening to you right now understands not only your brilliance, but your leadership acumen, right? And and, uh, Medell has written a book called The Visionary Leader, Seven Solutions to Implement Successful Change in Modern Healthcare. Um, a question that, and a theme that I'm looking to cover this season is what type of leadership is it really going to take to make lasting change in our healthcare system? I think so many people are frustrated with the state of play. And so I'm really curious to hear from you what your view is um, and maybe any principles from your book that you might want to share. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you for bringing up the book. And there's there's going to be another book that's going to be coming soon because you know, I think that as we continue on our journey, our journey to serve others, our journey to achieve greater equity and justice, both racial and economic um, equity and justice, we learn even more lessons. 
And I would say the leadership that's needed, I'm going to tell you a piece from my book, which is still my mantra when it comes to leadership. But over the years, there's even more that I think that we need to do, and especially where we are right now in the year 2022. But my main mantra for leadership has been through the acronym of SAVE. And SAVE, S-A-V-E, stands for, the S stands for servant leadership. And what that means is that we have to be there not only to serve others, but to serve our teams. And it's really critically important that we have the humility in order to be successful leaders of listening to others, but that we are also doing whatever we can do to remove the barriers and the hurdles that our teams have to face in order for them to do the job that we brought them on board to do. So servant leadership, I think, is by far one of the most important aspects of what we need in order to move forward. But then the A stands for acknowledgement. And I would also say amplify. Acknowledging the work, the great work of all of our team members, acknowledging the work that we as a collective have done, but then amplifying those voices that are oftentimes not at the table, not in the room where the decisions may or or actually occur, because that amplification is historically what we've missed so much. And then the V stands for vision. You cannot drive change. You cannot be a successful, impactful leader without having a clear vision that you yourself can see, but that you can also communicate to the teams that are around you. And then E is for excellence. Um, I believe all the time in excellence, KP. I know you are another man of excellence. That comes through <laughs> clearly, Madel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, and excellence doesn't mean perfection. But excellence means that every day we wake up and do our best in order to serve others and in order to help others in any way that we can. And that we're constantly just transforming ourselves to be the best version of us and to be the best organizations and to be the best providers. And and if I can add one last piece, the last piece I would add, which I think is critical nowadays, is C for courage. It is important Mm -hmm. that we as leaders are as courageous as possible to move this work along. And it's important that our organizations and our companies actually stand in courage as well, because this work is not easy at all. And so it takes that courageous and brave heart, those courageous ideas in order to make the impact that we need to make. Thank you so much. And we're going to put this book in the resources and then we'll look forward to uh, your next one. I'm very curious to hear um, what you have to share. I know there's a lot of wisdom that's going to be in there. Um, So I ask every guest this question in my podcast um, as we wind down. So I want to hear from you, Dr. Medell Briggs. Why are you in on health equity? Well, so I'm in on health equity because everyone regardless of who they are, deserves to be as healthy as possible. And I'm in on health equity because this is the time that we have to truly transform the way that we think about health, the way that we deliver services to improve health, and the way that we look at our communities and our country in order to ensure that we erase and dismantle those racist and oppressive structures that have historically intentionally prevented 
people from being as healthy and as successful as possible. And there's no better time than now. And that's why I'm in on health equity, because it's our all of our times to stand up together to do so. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you and your brilliance and and the energy and enthusiasm that you also bring to this conversation while also keeping us grounded on the realities. Like it's it's very inspiring. And I know our listeners not only took a lot from this conversation, but feel inspired. So thank you so much. And thank you, KP. It was wonderful being with you today. Thank you for joining us for the In On Health podcast. For more information on this guest and other episodes, please go to www.inonhealth.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at In On Health. Until next time, this is your host KP signing off. <laughs>